we are stepping into the pages of one of the most famous books in the world. Uh, it is the Guinness Book of World Records. This is uh, a phenomenally successful book. It has been a great success all over the world. And um, it is right up there close to the Bible in terms of uh, the, the number of, of, of copies that have been purchased and read and published all over the world in a whole host of different editions for over half a century. And it is a book which has undergone uh, an utter transformation from a fairly dry, austere-looking almanac or digest to a book with all kinds of splashy illustrations and photographs and, uh, and a real uh, interest in, in, uh, in celebrities and so on. Uh, a fascinating book and a fascinating history, which is explored in a new book called Getting Into Guinness, One Man's Longest, Fastest, Highest Journey Inside the World's Most Famous Record Book. The author is Larry Olmsted, a freelance writer. Perhaps you've seen his work in any number of different places. Larry Olmsted not only gives us a rich, detailed history of the Guinness Book of World Records itself, but also uh, talks about his own experience of getting into its pages as a record breaker uh, on a couple of different occasions in a couple of very different exploits. And... Uh, it makes for a, a wonderfully fascinating, multi-layered approach to celebrating the Guinness Book of World Records. The book, again, Getting Into Guinness, it's published by Hopper Collins and Larry Olmsted. We welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be talking with you, and I so enjoyed your book. It brought back very powerful memories for me of when I was in seventh grade. So by my calculations, that would be somewhere 1971, 1972. And I remember uh, my family journeying from our little town in Iowa up to the big city of Rochester, Minnesota, and of me walking into a, a, a bookstore someplace and seeing on the shelf something I'd never seen before nor even heard of called the Guinness Book of World Records. And I bought that <laughs> thick but relatively small Guinness Book of World Records. And um, for the next two weeks, I was the most popular kid in Decorah Junior High because uh, my, my peers, like me, had never seen a book like this before. And we absolutely devoured it. And when I think about the Guinness Book of World Records, I still think about my very first copy and how exciting it was to turn the pages and see the tallest man and the heaviest man and the longest beard and, and uh, all of these incredible things. And uh, I wonder uh, if you have a, a similar memory of your very first encounter with this book, whenever and wherever that was. Uh, absolutely. It was, uh, I was at a, a public school, PS92, in New York City, where I grew up, and uh, we had a, a copy on the classroom bookshelf of the, the paperback version, uh, which is what a lot of a lot of kids grew up with the the bantam kind of brick shaped thick paperback, which he, even though it's a uh, smaller somehow strikes me as bigger than the hardcover because it was so thick. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I don't even know if it was current because a lot as I've learned, a lot of uh, schools have a copy that's four or five or eight years old. But it, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, when you're a kid, the records are still fascinating, whether it's that year's or, or a few years earlier. And, and I think that uh, 
in the time I've been working on my book, Getting Into Guinness, I've encountered a lot of people like yourself who share those collective memories of certain, the fat twins on the motorcycle or the tallest man or the guy with the long fingernails. It doesn't really matter when you grew up. Everybody remembers them. Hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about the history of this book, of how it was created. And uh, it's interesting that its history is tied up in uh, a figure whose name we most of us have, have, have never really heard before, and, uh, and a name that uh, ultimately wasn't particularly associated with it. I mean, in other words, uh, the man who sort of conceived the idea ultimately kind of discarded this idea and went on to other things. Tell us about Sir Hugh Beaver. Uh, well, Sir Hugh Beaver was the uh, man, among many other things, he's a man of many accomplishments and different careers and uh, almost a Renaissance-type figure, but uh, he was the managing director of the Guinness Brewery, uh, the brewery being in, in, based in Ireland, the company based in London, uh, which at the time was the world's largest brewer, and everybody knows Guinness Stout. And um, he was bird hunting with some friends in Ireland, and they got into an argument over which of uh, two birds was faster, the grouse or the golden plover. And they made a gentleman's bet, and they went back to London, and they went to the library, and they tried to look this up. And much to their surprise, they couldn't find the answer in any book. And obviously there was no Internet at the time. This was 1954. So Sir U. Beaver said, you know, we our beer is on tap in all these bars and all these pubs in the British Isles, and people are sitting around right now having these same kind of stupid arguments with their buddies. We should put out a book that will resolve these debates. And they did. And uh, it was originally almost a bar advertising device, like a neon sign or a bar towel. It was never really intended to be a, a commercial book or a bestseller. It was stamped with the logo of the brewery on the cover, and it was uh, almost like a calendar or something, something like that. And uh, it just became so popular so quickly that they ended up uh, reprinting it and selling it in bookstores and um, eventually became uh, an annual fixture. Hmm. But, you know, one of the things that's so odd, you say uh, Sir Beaver may be forever known as the father of what was originally titled the Guinness Book of Records, but oddly his interest in the project seems to have ended almost as soon as it started. Yeah, I mean, he hired um, two twin brothers, Ross and Mar Norris McWhorter, to be the editors, create the book. He gave them money they needed to set up the company. The it was a subsidiary of Guinness Publishing. The book came out. It became an instant bestseller. He was happy with that, and he went on to his next project yeah. and never really gave it another thought. I like how you put it that Sir Hugh maybe fathered the book, as people would call it, but Ross and Norris McWhorter were its nannies or maybe its adoptive parents. Yeah, Tell they, us a little bit more about them. They turn out to be far more complex uh, figures than, uh, than any of us might imagine. Uh, they were. They were twin brothers. They both uh, went to Oxford together. Their father was a very successful journalist, and they had photographic memories, so they grew up with a, a real passion for facts and trivia, and they knew all the highest mountains and longest rivers in the world. And um, when they were at Oxford, uh, they also were, were standout athletes and uh, ran track and were on the same track team as Roger Bannister, the, the first man to break the four-minute mile. And um, and they became sports writers and announcers. And uh, right about the time Roger Bannister was breaking the four-minute mile was when um, 
Sir Hugh Beaver was looking for someone to put together the Guinness Book for Guinness, and uh, another uh, another track star from Oxford who ran with Roger Bannister had gone to work for Guinness, and he recommended uh, the McWhorter twins. <laughs> Sir Sir Hugh called them in, met with them, had lunch, and instantly hired them, and they would go on. Well, Ross was later assassinated by uh, the IRA. Uh, but first together and then just Norris would edit the book for about 30 years. Hmm. By the way, mention how shredded wheat, of all things, uh, shredded wheat breakfast cereal figures a little bit in the background of one of the McWhorter twins. I mean, it's an, as you call it, in kind of an eerie precursor to what they would do, the kind of work they would be doing with the Guinness Book of World Records. Well, they started a um, sort of statistics and research company for the media to sell facts um, to basically what we would call a fact-finding firm today for newspapers and companies. And one of their first contracts was uh, the people who put out shredded wheat cereal wanted some sort of trivia to print on the cereal boxes. And the McWhorters came up with the idea of of using what they called superlative people, tallest, fattest, whatever, along with illustrations, and that won the shredded wheat people over. So they started printing these little sort of Guinness-esque factoids on the box on the back of cereal boxes, and I think that kind of gave them the idea so that when Guinness the Guinness project rolled around, they knew how to handle it. Right. I mean, it's so interesting. It's sort of like two different paths to the very same thing. I mean, uh, in a sense, they were sort of intrigued by the same sort of thing as Sir Hugh Beaver was. And they were, in a sense, almost triangulating on the same goal. I mean, the the thing that I find, extreme, and there's a lot of interesting things in the history, but the Guinness Book is almost two different books. I have a copy of the 1955 edition and some of the early editions, and it was really a reference book. It, it looks more like a dictionary than anything else. Yet it was, and it was aimed at adults. I mean, it was published specifically to be put in bars, so its audience was you know 21 or 18 and over, and it became a runaway bestseller. Later, they totally revamped it, redesigned it, and remarketed it for. Um, you know, adolescents and pre-adolescents, and it again became a runaway bestseller. So it's not just one book with one phenomenal success. It's almost like two completely different success stories. In fact, I was going to say three, (laughs) because (laughs) there's this very austere early edition, and then there's the book that I bought back in 1971, and then there's the book that now you buy, which really doesn't all that closely resemble what I bought uh however many years ago that is, 35 <laughs> years ago. Uh, I mean, th- this has evolved in, in, in several interesting ways. Uh, let's talk about the arduous task it was for them to assemble that first edition, again, years and years and years before anything like the Internet existed. You say to get these ests from the ists, that is, you know, the fastest and the first and the highest, uh, they had to fire off hundreds of letters to experts around the globe. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how this first edition of the book took shape. They were, all, uh, by the time, Sir, Sir Beaver was a man of action, and by the time he came up with the idea that he wanted to do this book and hired them, he wanted it right away, and they essentially had 16 weeks to put together the first edition. And again, like as you said, there was there was no internet, there were no fax machines, uh, so 
they sent letters to experts uh, all around the country, um, scientists, physicists, uh, associations, things like uh, the U.S. Coast Guard, um, uh, different different uh, chemical manufacturers associations, all just asking, you know, what's the tallest mountain, the biggest iceberg, the largest molecule, whatever. And by doing that, uh, as well as traditional library research with a, a very small staff, I think at, at the start they had about three of them working on it, they were able to assemble the, the first book in 16 weeks, and the first book actually had a lot more records than the book today has. It had about 8,000 records in it, and now they're down to around five. <laughs> it's so fascinating. <laughs> I thought it was interesting when you uh, described their efforts, how they learned as they went some 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 interesting strategies in order to really get this information uh, out of out of these experts in, in in the most timely fashion possible. That you know to just send off a letter and just ask for this information would not always yield results. But if they could just go about it a little bit differently, they would be more successful. And, yeah, and I think the lesson they learned is is probably still valid today. They found that people who knew a lot about something were more eager to correct other people than to share their knowledge. So just asking the question, when that didn't work, they would make a statement. They would say, hey, I I understand, you know, Mount Everest is the the second tallest mountain in the world. That's right, right? And then someone would be eager to correct them. Right. Um, So, yeah. Whereas if you just asked, what is the tallest mountain in the world? You'd get Uh, ignored. Right. Fascinating. Well, when this book does finally take place in, I mean, an amazingly short amount of time, um, (laughs) it was uh, interesting how some, how commercial sales at first took off kind of slowly. You tell us the story of Britain's leading book retailer, W.H. Smith, how few copies they initially ordered, right? And and um, you know, and they had the right to return uh, the unsold copies anyway. And and W. H. Smith is is still very much in business. Um, or, uh, I, I when I'm over in the U. K. I buy my newspapers there. Um, but uh, they were reluctant, and I think uh, the same reluctancy was was encountered when they first brought the book to the U. S. Because people just didn't know what to make of it. There was nothing else like it. But sure. they very quickly. Uh, within uh, the the first day or so, had uh, reordered several times. Yeah, you tell us W. H. Smith initially ordered six copies right, <laughs> and insisted a print run of fifty thousand. Yeah, and insisted on the option to return them. And of course, it didn't take too long before they realized that uh, keeping this on the shelf was going to be uh, the biggest challenge. Tell us how, over those next years, this book began to evolve i mean the the most significant ways in which uh what you found in its pages changed well um the the first the 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 two big things were the advent of pictures and the first edition had almost no pictures um i mean it had a sort of insert section in the middle and it had a picture of mount everest but there were no uh, human oddities, no fat twins on motorcycles. Uh, so as they put more pictures in it, it immediately kind of lent itself more towards humanity. The first book had very few human records other than, than traditional sports. It was much more science and nature oriented and focused on the biggest ocean liner, that kind of thing. 
as soon as pictures started to appear with regularity, it was more interesting to have people. But uh, secondly was the advent of, of what um, I call Guinness Sport, which was when people realized, which, which happened very quickly, that they could do something and, and become the best at it and thus be in the book. Um, and and to do that, they started making up sports. The first one I was able to find was a marathon drumming. But once, as soon as people saw other people getting into the book by doing weird things, and this was, you got to remember, a blockbuster bestseller, people would say, hey, I could do that. And it very quickly escalated uh, to where people were doing all kinds of crazy things. Uh, smashing pianos is an example I give of a record that became very popular very quickly um, just to get into the book. And, and that is, is tied into our society's... Um, ongoing obsession with fame and celebrity, but at the time, there was no reality TV, there was no cable, there was no Us magazine, there was no MySpace. Getting into Guinness was the easiest and most visible vehicle for the average person to suddenly picture themselves as a media star. Right. And what's so interesting is you you finish your section about Jim Rogers, that marathon drummer <laughs> who kind of came up with this idea. You finish the section of the book by saying the book would never be the same because of thousands upon thousands of thousands of people dreaming up increasingly outlandish ways to get into that book. That book in which they all wanted to get into itself was profoundly transformed. Right. It became, it became essentially interactive instead of something to read, something to be part of in a way that the thesaurus and the dictionary never have. Nobody sets out to become a new word. And, uh, and that's why I called my book Getting Into Guinness, because it's such a seismic part of the story, how people set out, how it became all about getting into the book. And today, they get 65,000 applications a year from would-be record breakers. <laughs> Amazing. This, this uh, undertaking by Jim Rogers from Columbus, Ohio, uh, who seems to have created the concept of marathon drumming, um, <laughs> you tell us, uh, appears in the 1956 edition of the book. Uh, you call Rogers the first person ever to gain entry for a new and pointless category of human achievement. So it, it's amazing how quickly this began to occur. I suppose it took a little time for it to pick up steam, but almost from the beginning, this was a part of the story. Right, and by the early 60s, you really see it. You know, in the first few editions, there's a handful. There's the drumming, there's the piano smashing. But by the early 60s, that section of the book is almost doubling in size every year. And at the same time, in, in the U.K., they launched a TV show on the BBC called Record Breakers, uh, which in, was really the first reality TV. People would go on and, and try to break records live on TV and either do it or not do it. And that just was, was like throwing gasoline on this fire because people now could not just get their name in the book but potentially get on television, which you know, with two channels in, in the U.K. had been virtually impossible before. You spend some time in your book talking about this phenomenon of piano smashing <laughs> and it's it's so interesting and entertaining to read about that not only for the particulars of that but also that it represents all kinds of other similar exploits these guinness sports as as they're called 
these undertakings that that have never existed before and exist only for the purpose of of being the first to do something and gaining a place in in the Guinness Book of World Records. Just give us a little sketch of what piano smashing has looked like and uh, the way in which it it set in motion the creation of of certain principles that would guide what would ultimately uh, find a way, a a place in this book. Well, almost as soon as people started doing wacky stuff, the folks at Guinness realized that you needed to have rules because how could, you know, how can you break a record if there's no standards? You know, a hundred yard dash is a hundred yard dash, always. So, Something like piano smashing, you know, the first question is, well, what does it mean to really smash a piano? Is it a little bit smashed? Is it a lot smashed? So the people who invented piano smashing came up with a, their own rule, which was the, the record was essentially the fastest time to smash an upright piano and pass all the pieces through a metal ring nine inches in diameter. So all the pieces had to be that small. That small. And that would define thoroughly smashed. And, and it, to me, it just it typifies the, the sort of the humorous beauty of Guinness. It's, it's a, a, always a combination of just inane craziness and precision. <laughs> so here's, here's a pointless sport, smashing a piano with sledgehammers, that is, some, is, is codified with rules into a precise activity. And there was two, a two-man team using sledgehammers. Later, they would specify the weight of the sledgehammers, um, you know, everything about it, what type of piano it was, how big the ring was, how many people, what kind of sledgehammers. And uh, so it, it shows the evolution of the rules that you have to create with this kind of record. It also shows how when you're the first to do something, the bar is very low. I, I think the first piano smashers, it took them, what, over an hour or a couple of hours. And very soon, as college students on both the U.S. and the U.K. seized on this record, it got taken down so far, so quickly that uh, it became essentially insurmountable. I, I, I don't have the, I don't have my book in front of me. I do. You, what's you, the well, last you, time is like right. nineteen minutes or something. Well, you, well, let me let me see here. If if I'm reading this correctly, uh, one of the early records was fourteen minutes and three seconds, but it came down then to four minutes and fifty-one seconds, and eventually, by nineteen seventy-nine, piano smashing was down to a hard to fathom. 97 seconds, <laughs> almost a tenth of the time it took the record's pioneers some 18 years earlier. What you tell us then is at that point, when it, at, at, we're going to be talking about, you know, tenths of a second perhaps being shaved off the record, then the, the piano smashers have to look for alternatives, different ways to do this or, or different hoops to jump through in order to make this continually interesting. Yeah, and, and weird Guinness records have always uh, spawned other weird Guinness records. So uh, some guys said, well, the smashing's too fast. How about we set a record for sawing a piano in half? So then there's piano sawing in addition to piano smashing. And then there's uh, some karate instructors who said, well, hey, how about, how about karate sma- I mean, uh, piano smashing without any sledgehammers or tools at all? So they set the record for smashing a piano with just the bare hands and feet. Uh, almost as fast as the guys with sledgehammers did it. And uh, then people look at that and say, hey, these, these karate guys are onto something. Why stop at a piano? Let's smash a whole house. So I, you know, it shows how it evolved from smashing the piano to song the piano to smashing the piano karate style to destroying a house karate style, all from the same genesis. Hmm. And that's typical of, of Guinness records. 
We're speaking with Larry Olmsted. We're talking about his fascinating book, Getting Into Guinness, One Man's Longest, Fastest, Highest Journey Inside the World's Most Famous Record Book. Ahead of us talking about some of the interesting figures who've gotten themselves into the book, and you being among them, I want to talk for a moment about the chapter called 15 Minutes of Fame. I appreciated the fact that you extensively quote in this book from an author named Jake Halpern, who I had on this program, talking about his book, Fame Junkies. Very nice guy. And a very good writer, as you are. And, uh, And of course, so much of this revolves around that question of our hunger for fame. And when somebody is willing to undertake something truly bizarre and often quite dangerous, all for the sake of their name appearing in print in the Guinness Book of World Records, it says something about at least some of us and our hunger for fame. What have you learned about that in uh, not only talking to people like Jake Halpern, but some of the people who were obsessed, even as you were, to uh, to be a part of this book. Well, what really surprised me was how open a lot of the record holders were about the importance of the fame and recognition. You would think it would be something, you know, people would try to sort of uh, tiptoe around or say, oh, you know, I, I did it for the challenge. But people were very forthright with me and say, oh, yeah, I do it for the fame. I do it to be in the book. I like the attention. They're not embarrassed to say not, that. Not at all. Um, and they said things like, you know, uh, having that moment in the book was the greatest moment in my life. And, you know, people recognize me or people ask me for my autograph. And and, and, and they just love it. And, um, and you know, one of the things that, that Jake Halpern talks about to me is, how there's an actual, uh, you know, physiological process, a, a, a neurologic rush that you get, very similar to any other, you know, potentially compulsive activity, be it you know, sex or eating chocolate or gambling or drinking, that a satisfaction you get, which you know, in in the more extreme people, turns them into these serial record holders who really can't stop. Hmm. And you even talk about how there will be this sort of pattern of of uh, creating a goal or being confronted by uh, uh, their own record being broken and the wanting to gain it back and of the uh, excitement of the prep and uh, that moment when the actual attempt is made and particularly if success is gained, the euphoria, and then ultimately kind of the letdown and uh, that hunger firing up itself up again. And, uh, and that person being driven to either better their own record or to seek out some new kind of record. I mean, it becomes uh, what appears to be an insatiable hunger bordering on some kind of addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's not everyone, just as everybody who goes to a casino or everybody who takes a drink doesn't become a compulsive gambler or an alcoholic, but there's a, pers- uh, you know, a certain mindset uh, for whom the... The thrill, the attention, and then the letdown is is just too much to kind of let go of. And I experienced definitely some of that myself. I, I'm, I can I can say I, I don't have a record problem, <laughs> but uh, I definitely went through the different phases. Especially since I, you know, my first record was was for a magazine article, and I didn't know much about the Guinness Book at the time. I didn't have any expectation. I thought I'll set this record, and then I'll go on with my life. I didn't realize 
the attention it was going to bring me among my peers and the people that I knew and the media and, and what a sensation, what a rush that, that would be as a result of being a record holder. And then the next thing I knew, I was sort of second-guessing the record and saying, well, you know, it really wasn't that big an accomplishment. I, I, I could do something even more dramatic, uh, which is something that, that Jake talks about, about, you know, the escalating of the, of the, of the feats, mm. not just doing more of them. I want to read uh, another, I, I, I believe this is a quote of, of Jake Halpern in your book, as he describes at least what might be behind some of these attempts. He says, um, the reality is that most people reach some point in their life when they say, I'm not attractive or talented enough to be a movie star, and I'm not wealthy enough or have enough business savvy to become Andrew Carnegie, but I could stand on someone's front porch and bounce a ping pong ball 5,000 times. It may not be winning an Oscar, but it's something, and it will immortalize me. I will get some momentary recognition, and that will feel good. I'll probably be written up in the local paper. I might even get on TV. And people who don't pay attention to me at work will take notice of me for a day. The pretty secretary who never looks twice at me might ask me how I did it. Does that square with uh, most of the people you met? Does that, you think is that's an apt description of, for at least many of them, what this is about? Absolutely. And the, the interesting thing is that Jake didn't know much about the Guinness Book before I talked to him. But, and he kind of theorized all of this just based on his experience with, with the fame obsession itself. And I think he hit it right on the head. Hmm. Tell us about a couple of the gold medalists when it comes to world record holders, people who have seemed to construct their entire lives around this particular pursuit. You made a point of getting to know a couple of them who are most extraordinary. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's no better example than Ashrita Furman, who holds uh, and has for a long time held the most Guinness records of anyone in history. In fact, that is one of his records, is for being the most prolific record holder. And just since my book went to press, he's set 26 more records, um, taking his, his lifetime count to over 200. And and he is—he's the perfect example of of uh, of the serial record holder because um, he's truly like like a ski bum. I compare him to because I know a lot of ski bums, and you know, with ski bums, they they work odd jobs, but basically pattern their whole life around the ability to go skiing. And Ashrita is very much like that. He's built his life around the ability to break records and to to train for them. And that's something people don't think about is, you know, they see these people doing something crazy like balancing a milk bottle on their head. They don't realize how many hours of training goes into it. I mean, Ashrita trains like an Olympic athlete. It's a full-time job for him. Hmm. And yet it's not a job. It doesn't pay anything. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, right. I mean, and that's, that's well, one thing you told us. The Olympics used to not pay anything. <laughs> sure. But I mean, that's one thing that's also interesting about this is that people and and i i think maybe that's in some ways kind of the the potentially dark underside of it just like other addictions are that people are taking time and resources that they could probably be using in other ways maybe in more productive ways and uh and devoting it to this i mean that's that's the part that maybe is potentially disturbing 
Well, yeah, it is, and there certainly are examples of that. But the flip side is, uh, to me, you know, someone like Ashrita is not much different from, say, someone who runs triathlons or marathons, who, you know, is not a, a world-class athlete. There's a lot of people you see out when you, you know, drive to work, biking or running, and you could make the argument they're never going to win a gold medal at the Olympics, so is that a waste of time? But it's, it's physically good for them. And one good, one good effect of the Guinness World Records, I think, is that it's promoted a, a small subgroup to at least be fit, which is an increasingly uh, big problem in our society. Well, if that's what you're going after, of course, you point out that some of these records are about building gigantic houses of cards, <laughs> or that kind of thing. I mean, where you know that kind of the that kind of aerobic benefit is yeah, pretty negligible, right. if at all. Uh, I mean, I suppose someone might argue that that particular thing gains you something in the way of hand-eye coordination, I suppose, or something. But And, and I mean, there's certainly something to be said for the pleasure of the moment. But whenever a, a pursuit consumes your life, it seems to me that it makes sense to f- for the question to be posed of what ultimately is the benefit of this, and are there certain costs that ultimately outweigh that psychological rush that you get if you happen to break the record. I mean, I just wonder who's posing that question. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I talk about it. there's There's a guy who's been in the book the last couple of years who um, has a record for pulling cars with hooks, like meat hooks, essentially, stuck through the skin of his lower back. And there's a picture of him in the last edition with, you know, a car hooked to chains, the hook stuck literally through like near where his kidneys are, his skin, and he pulls cars like that. And that to me is is one of the most disturbing records because a, you know, kid, the book is aimed at kids. Kids are going to read that and think that that's an acceptable pursuit. You know, sticking a hook through my body and pulling something. Uh, I, I think it's kind of bound to get someone hurt. But but the question it raised for me is, how do you ever? How does it ever occur to you that you have a talent like that? How do you say one day, you know what I'd be really good at is sticking hooks through my skin and pulling cars. <laughs> yeah, that's when this starts to become, out. it's like, how would it ever occur to you? I suppose in some respects, that's for as pointless as many of these records seem to be. Uh, they They are sort of a monument to the human imagination. I mean, maybe more so than than excellence. I mean, some of these records, it doesn't seem like they represent excellence in the purest sense of that word, but just creating the idea itself involves imagination, which is something. Yeah, I mean, I think I say in the book that some of the records are harder to to think of than to do. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the first of your two attempts to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. I think, as you've already touched on, this involved... Uh, actually a writing project for Golf Magazine. They were anxious to do something that would sort of capitalize on the new popularity of golf uh, because of Tiger Woods, and we're looking for offbeat stories. And uh, and uh, in your desperate attempt to think of something uh, a bit outside of the ordinary, you come up with what? With uh, me doing a first-person piece about trying to golf my way into the Guinness Book of World Records, and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Tiger was suddenly popular. He was attracting a younger audience to golf, so they wanted some more interesting 
writing, and he also had just gotten into the Guinness Book for the highest career earnings. So I thought, well, it would be funny if I tried to see if I could join the ranks of, of Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas and Ben Hogan in the Guinness Book. Um, and to be honest, I, I didn't think I'd be able to do it. I thought it would more be a funny story of my failure to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, but I actually found a record that I thought I could break. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I hadn't seen the Guinness Book in, in over 20 years when I came up with this idea. So as soon as I got the assignment, the first thing I did was go to the bookstore and buy one uh, and sort of uh, refresh my memory. But the record that I found, because um, there are a lot of oddball records, like hitting the most balls hit at the driving range, most holes played in a day. But like a lot of the other Guinness records, they are... No matter how, how senseless, the bar is set incredibly high. I know for the, uh, for the most holes played in one day, for example, well, actually, it's most holes played in a week, it was over 1,700 holes, which averages 13 rounds of golf a day, which is just inconceivable to me. So, so I find this record that was uh, the greatest distance traveled between two rounds of golf played in the same day. And the record was just over 5,000 miles, or actually about 5,900 miles at the time. And I thought, you know, I'm a travel writer. I should be able to break that record. I should figure something out. And I was able to. <laughs> and you uh, outlined that whole, uh, that whole undertaking uh, in, in interesting detail in your book. You sh we should mention something, the fact that you do break the record, and then uh, your record gets broken. And um, you said sort of publicly that uh, you were delighted uh, that someone had uh, managed that, or uh, maybe you said something that records are meant to be broken and you <laughs> wished the next long-term golf world record holder uh, the very best, and you said that was a lie. <laughs> it, in fact, bothered you immensely when it, your record was broken. It did, and, and, I, and I still feel a little badly about that, but it was, you know, an honest human reaction uh, because... The the, re the record that I broke, the previous record holder, saw me on um, ESPN and called me up. I mean, you know, must have Googled me or something, found my number. I didn't know him, called me and, and congratulated me on breaking his record. And I thought that was fantastic. And at the time, I was, you know, I was new to the world of Guinness. It, it, it has this sort of... Uh, British formality to it, and, and I thought that was really just the icing on the cake, that this is, is good sport, it's amateurism, it's a feel-good thing, it was great that he called me, and I wanted to be as gracious to the next person, but I just couldn't be. <laughs> and um, Also, uh, I felt that I had actually really innovated the record. I found a new way to go about it, which is what enabled me to catapult it to another level, almost like uh, you know Dick Fosbury coming up with a new way to pole vault. But uh, the guy who broke my record basically uh, didn't add anything to the equation, just used my innovation. So I felt a little bitter about that. You end up uh, undertaking a, a second attempt to get into the Guinness Book of World Records, and it had nothing to do with golf. It had to do with poker and playing poker for the longest amount of time. Um, this is a really fascinating attempt, and you had a lot of, in a sense, regulations, safety regulations, and so on, and, and other kinds of regulations, too, uh, in order to produce, in the end, a, a legitimate world record. Just tell us about that. 
Well, uh, one of the many things that the average person doesn't know about the Guinness Book of World Records is what sticklers they are for rules and paperwork. And when you apply either for a new record or an existing one, they give you, uh, it almost looks like uh, a, a legal contract, pages of small print, red tape on what you can and cannot do and how you have to document it and all of these witnesses you have to have and the rules you have to operate under. And for uh, the poker one, because it was uh, the longest poker playing session, fell into a, a subcategory they call marathon attempts which is basically anything you're trying to do for a long period of time. And for those kind of attempts, because of the nature of the sleep deprivation involved, they always require medical supervision. And you have to, every eight hours, have a, uh, a licensed medical professional check on you, take your blood pressure, make sure you're still coherent. They have the right to call off the attempt. And then... To compound that, and you also have a certain number of witnesses, and the witnesses can't be related to you. And uh, in my case, I had to have uh, casino management officials on hand all the time, too, as witnesses. And then, to make, since you're doing something for such a long period of time, to make sure that the other people don't also get exhausted, you can't use the same doctor or nurse or witness or casino manager for more than one eight-hour shift in a row. So you have to have this sort of rotating team um, of logistical helpers on hand um, at all times just to just to do the event. And uh, most people don't know a whole bunch of doctors who are going to come, you know, to their house and watch them stay awake for three or four days. Hmm. This is a, a a really interesting question about safety. And to, what ex- and to what extent safety is a, a primary concern for uh, the folks behind the Guinness Book of World Records. And uh, you, you point out that there seem to be some inconsistencies. I mean, that, that they are, for instance, preventing the, the pursuit of certain kinds of records because of safety. And then they'll allow other pursuits to go on, which seem to be just as potentially dangerous, if not not more so. Just talk for a moment about that and that kind of maddening inconsistency when it comes to this Guinness Book and the matter of safety. I mean, a- absolutely. They almost have a, a, a Jekyll and Hyde relationship with safety. I mean, they, the food one's a good example. They, at one point, decided to ban gluttony records, and they thought it was unsafe for you to eat the most hot dogs ever. So instead, they switched to speed eating records and so instead of pure gluttony they'll have like uh, they have uh, most sausages swallowed whole in a minute now to me swallowing sausages whole as fast as you can is probably just as dangerous as eating a whole lot of sausages but uh, but not the way that they see it and, and there's a lot of those kind of inconsistencies but you know, uh, for you know, they turned down the Toronto uh, Sun newspaper estimated after interviewing Guinness that they turned down ten to twenty thousand applications a year on the basis of them being too dangerous, which is you know between a third and a fifth of all the applications they get. And an example that Guinness gave of of a couple that they turned down were a guy who wanted to spend the longest time in a gas chamber filled with tear gas, another guy who wanted to fall down the most flights of stairs. You can understand that those are dangerous, but are they more dangerous than sticking the meat hooks through your back and towing a car, um, or a lot of the a lot of the records that that they do permit, uh, or holding poisonous snakes in your mouth? 
Uh, I don't really think that they are, and I think that it eventually comes down to sort of what's photogenic. The meat hook guy is just too good a picture for them to pass up on, is, is my take on it. Yeah. You say it is interesting that Guinness considers eating live ants dangerous, but holding live scorpions, largest at seven inches, warranting a two-page spread, and poisonous snakes, the most uh, 12, in the mouth, is encouraged both in print and photos and by rolling out Texas snakeman Jackie Bibby on television and at special events. I mean, some of these particularly dangerous events, uh, they, they trot out with, with great glee. I mean, it really calls into question just how sincere their concern is about safety. Absolutely. And I think it's more, uh, and, and this, again, you know, it's just my take from the research that I've done on it, but that they want to have sort of a, a leg to stand on to say, look, we take these precautions in case someone sues them, but, but that um, their motivation can't really be safety because they just allow too much patently dangerous stuff to go on. Right. You do mention, or I, I don't know if you've just touched on it in, in this conversation, but one thing that they did some years ago, 20 years ago nearly, was that they banned all youngest records, the youngest pilot or the youngest person to, to swim the English Channel. That seems to make a, a lot of sense. It does. I mean, I know with the, uh, there was a, a pretty um, uh, well-publicized case a few years ago where a, a girl was trying to become the youngest pilot to fly across the, the U.S., and her and her father and her flight instructor were all killed when she crashed. And and that was a case where Guinness had stopped sanctioning that record just for that reason. The Guinness official said, you know, we were getting these younger and younger requests to be the youngest pilots and decided it was dangerous. And a lot of times uh, people will go ahead and try to set a record without ever having checked with Guinness. And that's where things get also get really out of hand. And, and I give some an example in my book in, in China where... Um, uh, 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 two parents who were both doctors had their 15-year-old son perform a cesarean section on a, on a woman under anesthesia in an effort to get him into the Guinness Book as the world's youngest surgeon. And you now they obviously hadn't applied, and when they did, Guinness said no, which it should. But, I mean, this is you know something that you would, in a heartbeat in our country, go to jail for. <laughs> mm, right. The bright side to this uh, is that for all of those sorts of, of things that, that leave us bewildered and disturbed, is that you point out that there is a kind of purity in this book, in that they do seem to take great pains to make sure that things are fair, uh, that people are truly accomplishing uh, the records that they are pursuing, and that uh, in the pages of these books we so often find ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And, of course, that is one of the most exciting, ingratiating things about the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, I mean, I, I say in the book that if it is, it's one of those sort of last bastions of, of Americana in the sense that if you want it bad enough and you're willing to work at it, you can get into the book. You know, you know might not be able to be the next Bill Gates or become president of the United States, but you can't, there is a place for you in the Guinness Book if you want it bad enough. Right. I should point out that uh, there are several fascinating appendices at the end of the book, including one in which you trot out the very interesting story of how the Guinness Book of World Records seems to be unhappy with you about the writing of this particular book. You also outline for us some of your favorite 
world records, and some of the most bizarre. I mean, things like most fish snorted in <laughs> one minute. Tell us what fish snorting is. I really had to read that description because I had never heard of it, and it was, uh, um, I know, I, I forget whether it's inhaling the fish through the nose and out the mouth or vice versa. No, in the mouth and out the <laughs> nose, actually. Exactly. Not uh, that I'm an expert. Yeah, um, which, again, I think fits the category of a sport made up for Guinness. Hmm. Not a lot of point to it otherwise. Absolutely. These are small fish, mind you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, in the end, you are successful with two of your attempts uh, to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, do you find yourself hungry to enter its pages again? No, I think I've sort of broken the cycle. I, I was after the poker one, and during the writing of this book, you know, obviously talking to all these people and talking about the, the joy it brought them and, think, and, and being exposed to so many different records. But my difficulties in actually dealing with the Guinness Company, uh, and, and I should make clear that the, the, the Guinness Publishing Company is no longer associated with the brewery. It was sold uh, many years ago, so I'm, I'm still very happy to drink the Guinness Stout. <laughs> but uh, but just um, my sort of uh, distaste with their, their backroom uh, workings and, and, and uh, policies left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth and took, took the edge off the, jo- the record-setting joy for me. So I think I'm kind of over it. Hmm. Well, this book is an absolutely wonderful entertainment start to finish. Again, it's called Getting Into Guinness, One Man's Longest, Fastest, Highest Journey Inside the World's Most Famous Record Book, published by HarperCollins. Larry Olmsted, I congratulate you on a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed speaking with you. Well, I'm glad you read it in such detail. I appreciate that.